Paul Strange Story is UK here, Series 2, Episode 23. This is The Truth of Bordy Rectory and Harry Price, Part 2. So if you haven't listened to Part 1, please do so first. Anyhow, straight into the podcast, uh, we're 1936. The year 1936 started with the publication of Harry Price's book, The Confessions of a Ghost Hunter which was targeting the popular market. The second chapter is entitled The Most Haunted House in England, and it's a disguised account of Price's involvement at Borley between 1929 and 1931. The book's first edition hints at a fraud being the reason for paranormal activity, although subsequent printing of the book admits this view, which is later claimed to to be duplicity by Price. The Reverend Alfred Henning was the new rector at Borley. He came as the parish was being combined with that of neighbouring Liston. So Henning had a choice of two homes, uh, the Borley Rectory or the Liston Rectory. He chose the smaller Liston Rectory. The church wanted rid of Borley and made attempts to sell it, but no one seemed to be very interested. So in May 1936, Price agreed with the Reverend Henning to rent Borley Rectory. Price was intending to carry out an extended and scientific investigation into the paranormal activities at the house. Price said he wanted a sceptical, cultured and educated volunteers and advertised in the Times newspaper on May the 25th, 1937. And he found a number of people that he accepted as being suitable, willing to vote their time, their money and their skills to the project to carry out watches at the rectory. It was later pointed out that Price, who was something of a control freak, wanted young people with no contacts to other organisations who he could mould into investigators that would not question him. Price wanted to keep the house under surveillance 24-7, inside and out. There was a rotor made for the observers, who worked in couples. There was a base room with camp beds, lighting and heating. This was to be the study which was located underneath the the blue room, the floor underneath. There was an instruction booklet giving guidance of how to investigate and an inventory was made of the house and all the movable objects were ringed by chalk. Between May 1937 and May 1938, over 70 people spent time at Borley Rectory. 48 of these people were Price's volunteers. The house wasn't always occupied. There were gaps in the rotor. It was usually manned at weekends and during the spring and summer months. It was later claimed that Price did not lead his large team of naive and enthusiastic volunteers. He let them loose on the house um, with little direction or supervision and accepted uncritically whatever they reported to him. The book that Price had produced, or the blue booklet, was called The Alleged Haunting at Borley Rectory. As I said, an instruction booklet of observers. This gave them an introduction to the rectory, floor plans, etc. and instructions what to do if, for example, if you see a ghost. It was argued that this booklet helped to give out a psychological message that every noise or thing out of order may be because of paranormal activity. 
The more people who heard or saw something semi-ordinary, the more out of proportion the explanation theories became. Any real meaning being lost in a combination of Chinese whispers, fear, and a sense of capturing important evidence. Not much happened at the rectory compared to the activity claimed by the foisters, and some of the observers believe that Harry Price was behind some of the odd happenings. Sidney Glanville was an influential observer during the Price tenancy. He produced a long and confidential report into the haunting, which became known as the Locked Book of Private Information. In the book were various legends of scandal, murder and misinformation regarding Baldy Rectory. Glanville also analysed the possible reasons why ghosts were seen at Borley. For example, the Smiths had been desperate to leave the rundown house. Glanville always looked for natural explanations for the phenomena. It was Glanville's daughter who experimented with a planchette, which is a device for facilitating automatic writing. This development gave Price a new possible explanation for the supposed hauntings in 1938. The story that developed was that a French nun came to Borley from France and she was raped and murdered by a member of the landowning Waldegrave family in 1667 and she was buried in the garden. Several transcripts of the Planchette seances were included in the locked book. One of these sessions predicting human bones would be found under the rectory when it burnt down. Although Glanville thought the haunting was genuine, he also said that Bordy was a very queer place. Sidney Glanville became tired and disillusioned by Borley, saying that it's fatal to have anything to do with Borley, and he wished he'd never heard of the place. Later, Glanville gave his locked book to Trevor Hall, um, a society psychological research investigator. Some claim that the book was bullied away from Glanville. It's thought that Glanville had strong suspicions about the honesty of Harry Price, and this was one of the reasons why he was so weary of the bawdy story. Another of Price's key investigators was Mark Keir Pierce, who was a courageous person, ready for anything. Keir Pierce followed Price's instructions to the letter and spent more time at Borley than any other volunteer. Keir Pierce, amongst others, was later to criticise Price's investigation, saying that not enough care or attention was given when carrying out experiments in order to obtain physical proof of phenomena. There was lack of a logbook poor communication, and unwanted visitors strolling around. Keirpiece does give some other insight into the uh, price period at the rectory. It seemed that the house was not run on any scientific grounds, and there was no real control over the house, and attempts to impose control were negated due to poor communication and misunderstandings. Keirpiece also mentioned tensions between observers. He took on others uh, to task for their slovenly habits. There was a criticism that Price never used many of the tools he developed in his national laboratory. For example, he never used his thermograph, which recorded temperature changes, or his infrared cameras. Other clever, clever experiments devised by Sidney Glanville were misused and made worthless due to communication breakdowns by different observers. Some phenomena recorded by Price was thought to be caused by natural means, such as 
the descendants of bull stray cats entering the building. It seemed that Keir Pearce, who stayed at the house for extended periods, did make some observations that seemed to rule out mal-observation or accidental interference from others, with items being moved. But overall, Price's investigation was either a missed opportunity or him just going through the motions to get material to write a book. During the time spent by Keir Pearce at the house, the BBC were planning a series of broadcasts from haunted houses. On learning this, Keir Pearce wrote to the director of the talk programme, offering uh, to give details of his experience at Borley. When Price found out about this, his controlling nature came to the fore and told Keir Price that he hoped that it was all a misunderstanding, as he was not to take part in the programme. Borley was Price's project, and he did not intend to share the limelight with anyone. This being an example of how Price's single-minded determination and controlling nature soured relationships with colleagues in institutions such as the SPR. Keir Pearce was now no longer the irregular at Borley after this incident, although we did keep up communication with Price. Mr Arben and his wife lived at the rectory cottage during Price's tenancy. They were keyholders and caretakers to the rectory. Arben was a steamroller driver and not a man of any finesse. It seems that the bumbling actions of Mr Arben were the cause of reported phenomena. Arben was only supposed to hand the keys over to people who had written permission from Price. But it seemed, for a monetary tip, he would give the keys to others. It was also pointed out by observers that Arben had a, a vested interest in the paranormal activity being reported, as many people would want to visit, which resulted in more tips for him. One of the observers, one of Price's observers, a Mr Adcock, and others saw a dark figure in the garden, along the Nun's Walk on the 7th of August 1937. The figure crossed and recrossed the lawn. The observers approached. They approached the figure and shone and tortured it and found out that it was Mr Arben having a look around to see if anyone was about. This annoyed Adcock who wrote to Price saying that such activity made observations very difficult. This was not an isolated incident involving Arben. Arben's activities are also suggested as the cause of footsteps and rapping at the rectory. Highlights of the Price's tenancy would seem to be as follows. In July 1937, a strange coat is found hanging on a peg behind a door. Wall markings appeared. A figure said to resemble the nun was seen in the gloaming. There were knocks and thuds. Doors were heard to open and close. Some objects seemed to move, but that was about it for a year's worth of investigation. On the 9th of May 1938, Price cleared out the house as his tenancy was ending on the 19th of May. Price seemed happy with his evidence that he collected during the year, claiming that his evidence would stand up in a court of law. He had proved that the house was haunted. The Church Commission were determined to get rid of Borley, in 1938 and it was decided to auction the building. An estate agent gave a guide value of about £450 for the house at auction. The property included the rectory itself, the rectory cottage, stables, garden 
and farm. The building was described as well built, in fair structural condition, but parts were dilapidated and dangerous. The interior was said to be out of date and needing much expenditure. It was described as dark and cold. Much of the rectory grounds were not included in the sale, having already been sold to a builder for future development. The agent said that the local rumour is that the building is haunted, and he suggested that if it was not sold it would be demolished for bricks, slates and doors and windows. However, the auction did not take place, as it was purchased for £500 by a Captain Gregson. Captain William Gregson served with the Royal Engineers. He moved into the rectory cottage with his two sons, Alan and Anthony. He used the rectory for storage. Gregson claimed to have experienced strange noises after moving in. On midnight, the 27th to 28th of February 1939, there was a fire that effectively destroyed the rectory. There was controversy and speculation regarding how the fire started. The accepted version is that Gregson was organising his books. The lamp he was using was knocked over and the flames quickly got out of control. During the blaze, locals, including the local priest constable, claimed to have seen figures walking in the flames. But the eyewitness accounts were not very convincing. The fire brigade had arrived within 15 minutes, but they couldn't save the building. It seemed that Gregson had insured the building for £10,000, and he put in a claim for £7,356. This was rejected on the suspicion that Gregson had started the fire himself having only paid £500 for the building. Sir William Croker, who was known as the Sherlock Holmes of Insurance, became involved and eventually the case was settled for £750. The opinion of Croker was that Gregson had started the fire himself, there being evidence that Gregson had lost his head, or so he claimed, when the fire started and he didn't call the fire brigade until an hour after the flames had took hold. This was indicating that Gregson orchestrated the events to obtain an insurance payout. After the fire, Gregson kept charging for people to visit the site, often quite substantial sums. His son Anthony was to say that his father bought Borley as a money-making enterprise, hoping to capitalise on its haunted reputation. But when this did not work out too well, he talked to the building for the insurance money. His other son, Alan, contradicted this by saying his father was an upright citizen and he would never break the law. Subsequent research uncovered found that Gregson was an organiser for the British Union of Fascists. Well, of course, this doesn't impinge on his perceived honesty. And fascism didn't have his bad reputation as it has today, but it gives some insight into his character. It could be argued that if Gregson had waited another year for the publication of Harry Price's first book on Borley, he could have had a cash cow on his hands. After World War II, Gregson sold the ruins of the rectory for demolition and left the UK to live in Tasmania. In August 1940, Harry Price published his book, The Most Haunted House in England. He was already a well-known author on the paranormal. Today the book seems lightweight and dated, although it is 80 years since it's been published, but it seems a bit weak, with lots of hearsay. The book's available to read online, 
Unfortunately for me, because the copy I thought I had had gone missing. In the book, Price draws on his and his observers' experiences, including photographs, floor plans, as he narrates the bawdy story. The book was well received and it quickly sold out, but wartime restrictions stopped it from being the money-making project that it could have been. The book went out of print and Price was thought to have only made about £200 on the book. The publication of the book marked the start of what's called Borley Hysteria, with all sorts of wacky Borley-related stories being reported by the media. For example, the BBC were broadcasting the programme Haunted Rectory, about Borley, and a knitting needle broke into pieces in a house in London. This actually made the newspaper. A Mr Croft lost a pencil while visiting Borley, and he wrote to Price in case it should a port to him. There was a psychic fair held at Borley to raise funds for the church. Acts of vandalism were blamed on poltergeist. Various visions and odd things were reported. Ghost cats, mysterious organ music, a headless pedestrian, a ghost pigeon were among the stranger occurrences. There was an elderly lady and her brother who claimed to have witnessed the arrival of a coach and a pair of horses at the rectory in daylight. They watched for several minutes as the occupants in period dress went out and returned to the coach. The coach drives off, then suddenly rises in the air and disintegrates, the various parts falling from the sky. This was then a letter sent to the local newspaper. The editor forwarded it to, to Harry Price in June 1947 who was intending to print the letter in full in his projected third book on Borley. Harry Price seemed to have encouraged bizarre observations and visions. I mean, he wrote similar visions in his book. For example, he describes in some detail, giving illustrations in his book, of a strange insect that appeared to a Margaret Wilson as she was painting a watercolour of the house. The description suggests a stag beetle but Harry describes it as just one of the many impossible things that happened in the Enchanted Rectory. The effects of suggestibility to excitable imaginations proving strong, Borley seemed to have created a self-perpetuating legend. After publication of the book, Price received a letter from a vicar, a canon Finian Adams, who came up with a theory that the bones of a Marillier might be found under the ruins of the rectory. This was based on his interpretations of the cryptic wall messages. The messages that Price at one time had been virtually convinced had been written by Marion Foster. It was thought that Price had no real belief in Canon Fithian Adams' theory and only undertook excavations at the cellars as a gesture to keep his support and give a possible new lead for his story. However, it proved to be difficult in obtaining suitable labour or accommodation or food due to wartime conditions to carry out an excavation. The cellars were choked with debris and the wells were filled with semi-liquid matter and they would need pumping out before any digging. Digging eventually started in August 1943. Price and his followers dug up the floor of the cellars and supposedly dug up fragments of a human skull. It was said to be flying Officer Creamer, who, according to Price, found the skull. 
Creamer denied this, saying that he was wandering vaguely in the rectory grounds when he heard a commotion going on and he went across to find some excitement over some bone fragments. The dig's written about in chapter 14 of the uh, End of Borley book, the chapter being called Truth at the Bottom of a Well. The bone fragments, which were at first identified as pig bones, were thought to be quickly switched by Harry Price, using his magician's experience of sleight of hand with a human jawbone a la Piltdown man Charles Dawson. This was done to bolster the story of Marie Lair that had come from the planchette. Mr Jackson, a local farm worker who was assisting Reverend Henning on the dig, was convinced that it was a pig's jaw that Henning pulled out of the clay and handed to Price. And that was the belief of the bawdy locals, to the degree that Henning had to bury the remains in the neighbouring Liston churchyard for fear of upsetting parishioners. The jawbone was later examined and found to have suffered infection when alive, which would account for uh, the sad-faced ghost, was she Mary Lair, that had been allegedly seen by various people. These bones were later buried in Liston churchyard by Reverend Henning, giving a good photo opportunity for Harry Sutton Cummings' second book on Borley. Borley had a record of skulls being found. These were thought to be the relics found in plague pits. A skull was found in a brown paper bag on the bookshelf when the Smiths took over the rectory. This could be a joke by a mischievous villager to welcome the new rector. But during the time of the bulls, when they lived at the rectory, skulls that had been found from ancient graves dug up by gravediggers were often taken to the rectory for reinternment. It's possible one got put to one side and forgotten about. In 1946, Harry Price published his second book on Borley, The End of Borley Rectory. Price gives a synopsis of the events that he said occurred between 1863 and 1939. These were bells ringing by themselves, strange lights seen in empty and locked rooms, a ghost nun who regularly walks the same route in the garden, slow dragging footsteps, a ghost coach pulled by horses, Wrapping, objects disappearing and then reappearing, pleasant and unpleasant odours, poltergeist activity, showers of pebbles, keys that came from everywhere, bottles and bricks hovering in the air, and so on. Price then talks about the story of the nun and her lover at the monastery and admits that it's just legend, as no monastery ever existed at Borley. Price said that there was a previous rectory that had been built on a medieval house on the grounds, but Price concedes that the legends were made up. However, Harry Price does talk a lot about the nun apparition in his books, as this is his star, his star ghost. Price then brings up the story to, up to date with the excavation of the cellars. This takes up a large part of the book, the discovery of the bones and the theories that came as a result of the planchette sessions. Then there are stories given to claim that the site is still haunted. For example, the experience of the Polish officers who stayed at the site for a couple of nights just before Price started his excavations. The officers actually stayed at the area of the Blue Room by laying planks on the fire-damaged joists in order that the men could stay in the Blue Room for the night. A great deal of paranormal activity was said to have occurred that couple of nights that the officers were there, 
in fact more than was ever recorded during Harry Price's year's stay at the house. So it was more likely just a huge joke played by some board officers that was widely reported. Harry Price writes about it under the heading, A Polish Investigation. He reproduces the report and stating that he would let it speak for itself. So Price manages to give the, uh, the Polish officers experience lots of coverage in his book, but does not actually comment on it, which was a skill that Price had developed over the years. He couldn't be accused of uh, going along with fake sightings. The book published in 1946, in my mind, is an improvement on the first book about Borley. It's quite an enjoyable read. Although chapter 22 is a little cringeworthy when Price quotes the Law Times for August 1941 that argues that his first book was remarkable and the evidence in a court of law would rule that the Borley Rectory is haunted. Borley's reputation as the most haunted house in England went unchallenged after the second book. The clergy, university lecturers, scientists, lawyers were all spellbound by the story of Borley. George Bernard Shaw, T.E. Lawrence, Montego Norman, who was the governor of the Bank of England, Bernard Spilsbury were all believers and were all said to have attended seances at Borley. Harry Price, who had accused the Foisters of manufacturing the paranormal activity, asked Lionel Forster to contribute his experiences to the book. Foister being quite surprised at this invitation, he was assured that not a word of Price's earlier suspicions would appear in the book. The Foister's name making more appearance in the second book than anybody else's. So Lionel and Harry had patched up their differences to, prevent, to present a united front on Borley, although Lionel had died by the time the book was published. Price was quite famous now. No newspaper report or broadcast on a haunted house was complete without Harry's thoughts about it. He had status and reputation that any psychic researcher could never hope to equal. By 1948, Price had decided for a third book on Borley and began researching material to prove that the phantom nun, novice Mary Lear, Price could pull off pull all the material evidence had collected together and tell the story in one large book which would make him a lot of money and further his reputation. Unfortunately for Price, he never had the chance, as on Sunday the 28th of March 1948, he was found dead in his favourite chair in his study. He died of a heart attack at the age of 68. He'd only written 2,000 words of his Burley Three book. Tributes were paid, the Times newspaper calling him an authoritative, significant and influential character. His clear and transparent sincerity coupled with an honest mind. Other tributes gave a hint of the true Harry Price and his brand of grey honesty. Neil Weaver, the chairman of the Magic Circles Occult Committee, told the Daily Mirror that Harry made a joke out of his investigations. He didn't pretend to us. He wasn't unpopular. He was a most likeable man. There seemed to be a lot of interesting material that was not explored by Price and continued to be investigated by interested parties at Borley. In 1954-55, excavations under the leadership of Philip Paul were carried out. 
Philip Paul was a journalist and a psychical research investigator who had close links with those that believed in the Borley hauntings, and he was a passionate believer himself. The excavations proved that a tunnel seemed to run under the road between the rectory and the church. A stone slab that had been noticed by Price in 1943 was later confirmed as the original altar stone. The Reverend Henning wanted to restore the stone to its original place in the church and sought permission from the church to do so. A black marble slab covering the tomb of a previous rector, a Humphrey Borough, who was rector between 1722 and 1758, was thought to contain the supporting pillars of the original altar. These were required to restore the altar, but excavations only found ancient yellow bones and sandy soil. These were gathered, gathered up and reburied in the churchyard. James Turner, who was living at the rectory cottage at this time, with his wife Cathy, during the dig he broke into what proved to be a brick-lined vault of Henry Borough. When a torch was lowered at the end of a pole, three skeletons were visible on top of each other in three feet of water, the wood of the coffins having rotted away. The next day the hole was sealed and the original altar was laid back into the church. The excavations continued, as it was still thought that long-lost church treasure was buried somewhere in the grounds. The planchette sessions had predicted buried treasure, buried church treasure in the grounds. A diviner was brought in and filmed by the BBC, who were there in connection with their haunted rectory programme, hoping to find new material. Several holes were dug in the search of the treasure, but nothing was found. The Turners spent a lot of time investigating the old wells at Borley when they first arrived in April 1947. They wanted to fill in the cellars and lay out a sunken rose garden, but decided to see if there was anything of interest in the small wells that Price had started to excavate in 1943. They decided to do this before they started to make their their sunken rose garden. They dug down until they came to compacted clay, then filled in the holes, so nothing of any interest found. They then turned their attention to the main well in the rectory courtyard, which they investigated with the help of well experts. The well was 80 feet deep, with water at 71 feet. Turner felt that there was a tunnel off the well, and he continued to investigate but again, nothing was found. In 1957, a workman found a tunnel running from the rectory in the direction of Bordy Place. Bordy Place being adjacent to the church and opposite the rectory cottage. The tunnel, uh, the Bordy, sorry, beg your pardon, Bordy Place was thought to date from the 13th century. The tunnel was not a large tunnel, and the bricks were said to be Tudor manufacture, probably made before 1625. The width of the tunnel was about 32 inches, the height 28 inches, and the construction was in excellent condition. It was thought that the tunnel that only ran for a few yards was a secret tunnel constructed by the Catholic Waldegrave family during the time of the Reformation, perhaps as a priest hole to hide a Catholic priest. The Waldegrave family being the only people with the resources and the requirements to build such a passage. There was a collapsed tunnel that led from the cellars at Bordy Place, but the destination and the reason for the tunnel was unknown. There was also a group of people from nearby Sudbury who investigated Borley. 
They had links with similar groups in the area. They were convinced that there was an entrance to the church crypt somewhere in the graveyard. The group found the entrance on the 6th of July 1988, when one of the group realised that the tomb, that there was a tomb that didn't have any name or inscription. They climbed the ironwork and removed the plain flagstones and found steps going down. They descended 30 feet, passing skeletons in soil, coming to a wooden door with a keyhole. Torches shone through, showed a small altar and a large bundle of what looked like papers on the floor and passageways. They could not open the door, which was barred with metal bars and the date, AD 21. They estimated that the crypt entrance was below the altar inside the church. Later investigations suggested that the grave or tomb was a dummy that somebody had gone to great lengths to a disguise. The crypt was described as a huge chamber with an arched ceiling, extending at least the length of the church. There was a small altar covered with a purple cloth on which there was a crucifix. There were some coffins which appeared to be made of lead resting on some stone supports. No explanation was ever given. It was thought that it was connected with the Waldegray family. Wesley Downs, who was a Borley enthusiast, said that the vault had been entered a number of times in the past, but now the entrance has been sealed and it's forbidden to enter. It's long been known there's been tunnels in the area. Another tunnel was found at Borley Place at the time when the bulls were living at the rectory. A local man repairing a wall in the grounds of Baldy Place next to the church uncovered brickwork a few feet beneath the surface of the ground. This was Tudor brickwork, and when he investigated further he discovered a huge domed-shaped tunnel, which he entered and followed for an unstated distance, before turning back. The tunnel was sealed, but why this was not further investigated, for example when Price was excavating the area, it's not known. There was a 14th century tithe barn next to the churchyard. During 2004 it was being converted into private home. Human remains were found on the site. Comparisons were made with the remains found under the rectory. But it was decided that in the past the church graveyard had been larger and the tithe barn had been built over existing unmarked graves. We now reach December 1948 and the first accusations of Price manufacturing the phenomena and faking the haunting appeared in print. Charles Sutton, the Daily Mail journalist and associate of Harry Price, told of a visit he made to Borley with Price and Lucy Kay on the 25th of July 1929, 19 years previous. Sutton published his account of his visit in a book called The Inky Way Annual, which was a charity book written by journalists. Sutton said that many things happened that night at Borley, as he was being shown around the house at night by the light of a hurricane lamp. He was struck on the back of the head by a large pebble. He seized Price after this incident and found his pocket full of pebbles. Stones were being thrown. Sutton accused Price of manufacturing noises and a feeble attempt at ventriloquism, which was described by Sutton. When Sutton tried to post his story with the Daily Mirror in 1929, oh, sorry, the Daily Mail in 1929, it was binned, as a news editor embellished the story to a degree that Price's reputation would be finished. The night lawyer at the paper, 
came to the conclusion that Price would have grounds to sue the paper. There were other accusations made against Price after the Sutton article was published. The SPR, Society for Psychical Research, tried to get to the truth of what happened. They conducted an investigation into what actually happened that night and into other incidents. They commissioned a report into the Sutton incident in 1956. They called it the Haunting of Bawdy Rectory, a critical study of the evidence, which is also known as the Bawdy Report. This was to be compiled by Dr Eric Dingwall, who had worked closely with Price in exposing fraudulent mediums in the past and was a highly thought of SPR researcher. He was a mysterious character who worked for the Ministry of Information. There was Molly Goldney, who was awarded an MBE for her war work. She was a midwife who was a respected member of the SPR. She was possibly a former lover of Price and had worked closely with him. Although she was said to possess great charm, she was also said to have a strong personality and didn't suffer falls gladly. The third member of the team was Trevor Hall. He was a writer, a historian, and by profession a chartered surveyor who collected books on conjuring. It was Hall that wrote about two-thirds of the report, which was later published as a book. He travelled around the country interviewing everyone he could that was connected with Borley. Hall made friends with Sidney Glanville, who gave him the Borley locked book. During his time investigating the Foisters, Hall became so fascinated with Marianne's private life that he wrote a draft of a book called Marianne Foster of Bawdy Rectory, intending to publish it after her death so as to avoid any claim for libel. Although she was 11 years older than Hall, she outlived him and the book he wanted to publish was never published. Although Robert book Wood published a book the Widow of Borley, based on Hall's research. Hall was criticised for his approach, which was not considered even-handed, as he had a presumption of fraud regarding Price and Borley, and he was determined to expose it. The Borley report was published in January 1956, called The Haunting of Borley Rectory, a critical survey of the evidence published. The forward stated that the report is a forthright but unavoidable criticism of the methods of the late Harry Price, and this report has been prepared with reluctance in view of his death and consequent inability to defend himself. But our survey has been based on a close study of Price's own files, which were not available for scrutiny during his lifetime. Molly Goldney said that she was deeply shocked at what she'd found. She said this just before the report was published. She said that she found herself placed in a very invidious position and it was very unpleasant shock to her to find herself unable to escape the unpleasant conclusions suggested in the report and also possible hurt to Harry Price's widow. But she felt let down by Price after being presented by the evidence. The report gave a history of the rectory the legends associated, an assessment of all the characters involved with the Borley story. It gave testimony of living witnesses and the records of Price. 
The book argued that the phenomena at Borley was fraudulent or exaggerated, and it was Price who was guilty of this. Price had not taken enough care in collecting testimonies of the Bull family, some of whom were total sceptics. This was never made clear. There was also incorrect reporting getting Henry and Harry Bull mixed up in the reports. The Bull sisters had been annoyed after reading Price's book. They had never been given the opportunity of approving the section attributed to them, and in consequence there was a number of mistakes, exaggerations and overstatements. For example, there is the occasion when Harry Bull saw his retriever dog growling and then spotted a man's legs, the rest of him hidden by fruit trees, before the legs disappeared through a gate. When Price wrote about this in his book, he claimed that Harry Bull had seen a headless man, without mentioning it was probably a poacher or a tramp, both of whom were common in the area. Other criticisms of Price was that he did not try to rule out natural explanations for what he claimed were paranormal activity. For example, a rosebush tapping against a window, or activity from a nearby rectory cottage, lights and noise. Then there were the accusations made by Charles Sutton about Price stone-throwing to create poltergeist-type action. There were the accusations of him turning wine into ink, making ghostly noises, making pencil marks on the wall and burying human remains in the cellar of burnt-out buildings. Price denied the presence of rats and mice in the rectory, which was a ludicrous assertion. Price did not consider the acoustics of the house that may have been the result of its strange shape, or other reasons for phenomena which he identified as paranormal phenomena. He didn't give enough thought on what other natural explanations there could be. Other people mentioned the actions of badgers, foxes, rats, being the causes of strange sounds. It was said that the theory put forward by several people was the effects of a cloud of mosquitoes following the track of an underground stream causing strange shapes seen in the evening light, perhaps nun-shaped clouds of mosquitoes. Tunnels that were known to exist under the ground may have caused effects such as partial roof falls. And not least, the activities of local vandals and board farm workers must have had an impact and caused some of the so-called phenomena. In his private correspondence, Price said that Mrs. Foister created the paranormal activity. He did not respond he did not report this publicly. In his book Confessions of a Ghost Hunter, Price shows little interest in Borley, claiming that the Foisters created the spirits. It was only after 1936 when Price thought that he could use the Borley story to his advantage. In his book, Price said that as soon as the Foisters moved into the house, there was paranormal activity, a voice calling Marianne in footsteps. Price wondered how they stayed in the house for five minutes. What Price does not say is the Foisters often had a lodger in the house with them. Sometimes the lodger was Marianne's lover. So someone calling out Marianne and footsteps could not be considered that surprising. The report went into other criticisms of Price regarding Mabel Smith. Also the miraculous medals discovered by Price in the cellars to provide circumstantial evidence in order to prove a theory and also to provide a chapter in his book. These medals were probably planted by Price 
who was of the opinion they were actually dropped by a workman as the rectory was being built. There was a flying brick episode which Price made into a selling point. He did not mention that witnesses there at the time said the brick was thrown by a workman demolishing the house who was out of view and the photographer just captured the image as he was photographing the ruins of the house. Lights in the rectory windows were reflections from car headlights or the neighbouring rectory cottage. Price put all this down to paranormal causes, or at least suggested that they were. Harry Price was shown to be a rogue, a falsifier and a manufacturer of evidence. The competence and credibility of the volunteer investigators he employed was being questioned before the book was published and the book proved to be an exhaustive and documented report into the matter. It received a lot of publicity. The Spectator magazine quoted a shattering and fascinating document offering satisfaction at last to all of those that have been curious to know what really was the truth behind Borley. Harry Price was able to erect and maintain for years the House of Cards, which he built out of little more than a pack of lies. That was the report in The Spectator. Such a report managed to upset those who supported Price. Peter Underwood called the report biased and uncharitable and not consistent with the evidence. Peter Underwood. A charming man, but a Borley enthusiast who peddled the Borley myth for years and made a good living from it. In his writing, he wrote of a number of stories that had no basis in fact. He wasn't the most objective of critics. He was clearly biased in favour of Price and the haunting of Borley. Those that opposed the findings of the report ruled die-hard die Borley enthusiasts who still believed in the hauntings. They still had influence within the SPR and insisted on another report being produced. This became the Hastings Report that was to re-examine the evidence. Robert Hastings produced a dull anemic report which gave Price every benefit of the doubt coming to the conclusion that he was a kind and generous man of upright character and he had complete integrity. This did not ring at all true with those that knew Price. Hastings found that Price, that, I beg your pardon, Hastings found that Sutton may have exaggerated his claims and the case against Price in his instance was not proven. Hastings reported that Price may not have been aware of the accusations that Sutton was making against him at the time, as he seemed to be suffering a mini heart attack. And the objects in his pocket could have been stones that he had collected as projectiles earlier thrown by Poltergeist. Or possibly they weren't stones at all, they might have been other items. The report also noted that uh, Sutton's notes were written from memory. However, it seems strange to me that Price never referred to Sutton in his publish, published works. On balance, it seems highly likely that Sutton did accuse Price of faking paranormal happenings, but Price tried to forget about it. The Hastings report argues that Sutton didn't actually see the stones that were being thrown, and that Sutton made no attempt to collect the stones that were said to have been thrown. Hastings goes on to argue that the sound of stones being thrown may have been due to the, the crepitation of the floorboards or falling plaster at the house. 
Ironically, the Hastings report does not suggest that the stones were thrown by poltergeist. The Hastings report suggests that the echoing crashing sounds may have been caused from stones falling down the stairs, stones that would have been left by removal men to keep doors open, that were dislodged by Price and his party as they walked in the dark. Again, Hastings asked if the items in the pocket may have been from Pierce's ghost hunting kit and were mistaken for stones. Hastings asked, was Sutton in a sufficiently calm enough state to allow him to make accurate observations? And can we rely on Sutton's memory after 20 years to be accurate? I think you can gauge from these quotes from the Hastings report that there was an attempt to whitewash the accusations against Price. It argued that Price did not visit uh, uh, Borley after Sutton's accusations because he was busy on other projects and Borley was 150 miles away from where he lived and that there were no grounds whatever for suggesting that Price lost interest in Borley following the, uh, the Sutton incident. The Hastings report went into the Sutton incident in forensic detail but it does not dispel the accusations that Price was a fraud, which to me was the obvious conclusion. But they were not stated as such by Hastings. The report sums up the Sutton incident by supposing that the incident that did occur was relatively mild and that Price and Lucy Kay seemed to forget about it while it grew more dramatic in Sutton's recollection. And anyway, it seems that Price was suffering from a mild heart attack and was aware of the accusations made by Sutton. Anyone reading the Hastings report would see that it's biased very much in favour of Price and those that peddle the bawdy myth. The report next examines Mabel Smith, the widow of G.E. Smith, who argued that bawdy rectory haunting was nothing more than rats and local superstition. The Hastings report said that the Smiths only lived at the rectory for nine months, from October 1928 to July 1929, and Mabel Smith seemed to have forgotten important matters. She was a sensitive and religious person whose health was not good, and if she remembered the experience at Borley, they would prove to be very painful for her, so she may choose not to remember. The Hastings report is dismissive of Mabel Smith and even tries to argue that Price's wine into ink trick never happened or that someone else could have put the ink pellet in the wine at Smith's house. To my mind, all very unlikely. The Bawdy Medals. These were a number of objects that appeared at the rectory as a result of poltergeist activity, amongst which was an eight-sided brass medal of... St Ignatius, who appeared at the medal appeared at Borley on June the 27th, 1929. Price thought that the medal may have been dropped as an indicator or a pointer to the Maria Lier, the uh, the nun story. The medals were struck in the 19th century, and they were called miraculous medals after a nun who became a saint after she saw the Virgin Mary. Harry Price describes the story in his book. Uh, the end of Bawdy Rectory. The Bawdy report claims that the medals were positioned by Price to try to give some credence to his story. Price collected coins and medals 
and would know how to source them. The Hastings report said that any discrepancies between the published statements regarding the medals were due to carelessness rather than any deliberate attempt to deceive. Papers were lost, and then the war happened. All this muddied the water for Price to spin his stories. It's suggested here that Price planted the medals to try to give support to the story, while the Hastings report suggested that it was all confusion and the actual story can't be ascertained now. The excavated bones. Price was accused of planting fragments of bones that were uh, excavated in the presence of witnesses in 1943. It was argued that Price could not have planted the bones as he was too infirm. Price was given permission to dig in the cellars in 1941 and had ample time to plant the bones. He didn't seem to have any trouble getting about at the time. The Hastings report says that the charge of bone planting is not supported by anything more than substantial than a series of, a series of surmises, which is difficult to argue against. The fact is that no one will ever be able to know the truth of the bones found at Borley. The report says that the Reverend Henning did not think that Price planted the bones because he had a weak heart. I say Price was active in 1943 and capable of planting the bones. But neither statement can be proved. Henry Douglas Home. He was the brother of the future Prime Minister who made allegations that Price faked phenomena making pencil marks on the wall and causing sounds that Price claimed as paranormal. Douglas Holm said that after dark, a group would tour each room every hour. Price would be in the rear. The first few hours we found a number of extraordinary squiggles on the wall that had not been there an hour previous. We each carried a torch and I was so intent on examining each new mark that I failed at first to realise how they were being made. The last man, who was Price, had a pencil up his sleeve, and as he swept his torch ahead, he made new squiggles in the darkness, which would be found in our next inspection. Douglas Hume found that by changing places with Price, no other poltergeist, poltergeist squiggles would appear. The Hastings report said that the allegations can't be taken seriously as they were made from memory 12 years later. Price's duplicity. This refers to the fact that Price thought that the Foister phenomena was a fraud, but when it suited him he claimed it to be genuine. Basically the Hastings report argued that it was not duplicity. Price had changed his mind. He at first thought in 1938 that the Foisters were producing the phenomena. But by 1940 he was convinced that it was paranormal activity. By such reasoning duplicity can never be proved. And remember that Price only met the Foisters twice. The Flying Brick Incident. This charge is dismissed because Price never actually claimed that it was a paranormal incident although he posted a picture of it in his book suggesting that it was a paranormal incident. An American journalist, Cynthia Thompson, who was a Miss Ledsom at the time, was with Price when the bricks were thrown up by workmen concealed behind a wall. She jokingly said, Look, poltergeist. Price joined in the joke 
as he walked up and picked up the brick, saying, Yes, indeed, look, no wires attached. Thompson, who took this as a joke, was said to be astounded when she saw the story in the end of Borley Rectory book. When the photographer who took the photograph saw the way his photograph was being used, David Sherman, he basically said, What a cheek, but good luck to him. Regarding the so-called minor allegations, without going into too much boring detail, the fact that Price exaggerated the Bulls' narrative is excused because the Bulls were approaching 90 years of age and the memory must have been failing at the time. The report goes into fantasy then, discussing ghosts seen in the wreckage of the burnt building and other accounts such as swinging blinds when there was no draft to account for the movement, suggesting that... It could have been paranormal phenomena. The Hastings report then analyses Price's aims and evidence of character. It was suggested that Price wanted to write a report similar to An Adventure, which, uh, listeners, I have already made a podcast about, if you'd like to search it out, parts one and two. He wanted to produce a simple narrative, making it neither too scientific or too popular. Sometimes a bit of poetic licence allows the story to flow. The Hastings report does go on to say Price's secretary or lover admitted that Price told lies from time to time. And it's said that Price was a controversial figure, his actions unpredictable, and he was inclined to be secretive. The Hastings report was an attempt by the SPR to stop warring factions over Borley by providing a balance to the Borley report. But it didn't seem too interested in searching out the truth, which is disappointing for a society of psychological research report, which normally are so good. I would suggest that Price was a charlatan who duped the majority of his colleagues, the public, journalists and influential with his po-faced seriousness. Price wanted to make money out of Borley and with a gullible public he was able to do so. As Price was supposedly said that the public prefer bunk to debunk. It was something that Price exploited for years with many phenomenal farces ending up as psychical history. Other famous cases of paranormal that Price was involved after Borley that were given much press coverage included the Brocken Experiment. This is when Price collaborated with Nazis, witchcraft and black magic to try to transform a virgin male goat into a beautiful young man. I'm not sure that Price took it too seriously. I think it was more of a jolly organised by the Nazi party wanting to win over some influential British people. Joad, the popular philosopher, accompanied Price on the trip. The episode did backfire and Joad and Price were ridiculed in the press. There was Jeff, the talking mongoose on the Isle of Man, although Price did say that only the most credulous of individuals would be impressed with the evidence for Jeff. Rosalie was supposed to be a six-year-old girl that was supposed to have died of diphtheria in 1921 and then appeared naked at seances in London. This seemed to impress Price, although some people suggest that Price fabricated the case. But if it did take 
place, it seemed that Price was tricked by a, a fraudulent seance. Price wanted to make a search of the Loch Ness after World War II, but this project failed because the lock in the land were owned by so many different people. Despite what I've written about Harry Price, I do have regard for him and what he achieved. I would have liked to have met and argued with him, and Price certainly managed to spit opinion. Although I think there are romantics that would like to think that there was some truth to the bawdy hauntings and feel loyalty to Price for keeping that fantasy alive. There's little doubt that Price was controlling, that he used people and was determined to achieve his objectives by whatever means he could. Regarding Borley, Price said that fraud, malobservation, exaggeration, natural causes and trickery, conscious or unconscious or subconscious, could not have accounted for the phenomena at Borley. But I'm afraid I disagree. Borley was a hoax that ran and ran and made Price rich and famous, and other people did very well out of it. Even though I think it's all nonsense, I enjoyed the Bawdy story, and I hope you did too. So that ends the Bawdy part two, and I would like to thank Damselfly for providing the background music, and I'd like to thank you all for listening. So thank you, and goodbye. Goodbye.